Hello and welcome to episode 250 of the UK True Crime Podcast. After last week's Fun and Games, where I released five different versions of the podcast due to my incompetence, today I am aiming to get the right content released the first time. Just how difficult can that be? Hmm. Today's story is about the expectations that privilege can sometimes bring and the desperation for wealth. Nothing new then for this podcast. And let's face it, you don't reach the height of the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcaster unless you are motivated purely by wealth and fame. (laughs) A huge thank you to Chris Wood for writing today's episode. You can still buy his excellent book, Famous Last Words, at Amazon. A huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this exclusive club. That is Catherine Robinson and Sam Bishop. Thank you so much, it's really appreciated. This episode is brought to you by Trip. Okay, so let me talk to you about Trip, the guys who make my favourite CBD infused oils and drinks. Today, let me concentrate on talking to you about the drinks. They're incredible. Elderflower mint is my absolute favourite, although my wife is convinced that the lemon basil one just has the edge. They not only make you feel great, but the taste is truly incredible. They are lightly sparkling, sugar-free and plant-based, so great for a vegan like me to enjoy. If you haven't tried them yet, give them a go and see for yourself just why people are talking about how amazing they taste as well as helping you to chill out as well. To take a trip to happy days, go to drink-trip.com and listening to this show, you will get 15% off your first order with free shipping using the code CRIME15. That's drink-trip.com and use the code CRIME15 for 15% off your first order. This podcast is brought to you by Best Fiends. A bit like spending time with me, with Best Fiends, the fun never ends. I love playing Best Fiends and it never gets dull, as there are always new levels, events, challenges, so it never gets stale. I bet if you haven't played yet, you would love the puzzles like I do. And although the game is made for adults, you will enjoy the bright, colourful gameplay and all the cute characters that you collect during the course of the game, which help you on future levels. I play on my own sometimes, but also with friends and family all over the country. It always gets competitive. You know how it is, right? The other great thing with Best Fiends is that you don't need internet connection. Ideal for me living in a remote area where the internet is always a challenge to say the least. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Okay, so let's quickly set some context for today's story with our guest the month and year game. In the UK music charts, Farrell topped the charts with Happy. In the US, it was Eminem featuring Rihanna with The Monster. The album charts in Australia were topped by one of your and my favourites of all time. Yep, it was the soundtrack from Frozen. In the news this month, Woody Allen received some Lifetime Awards at the Golden Globe Awards. (laughs) It's fair to say I'm not a fan. Is anyone outside the establishment? 
This month saw Peter Cosgrove being named as the next Governor-General of Australia. And at the Old Bailey, police officer Keith Wallace pleaded guilty to misconduct in a public office over an email he sent to his local MP concerning the Plebgate affair. Remember that? And finally, the UK Independence Party suspended an Oxfordshire councillor who blamed the floods that hit the county earlier in the month on the government's decision to legalise same-sex marriage because it had angered God. No, really. Did you get the month and year? It was January 2014. OK, let's get stuck into today's case. Today's story focuses on a rather bizarre figure. Divisive, egotistical and certainly narcissistic. No, it wasn't a politician or even a Daily Mail columnist. But a man called Tony Colston Hayter. A curious figure who more than believed in his own hype. He was a man who sought fame and fortune and would consider every avenue to achieve his materialistic aims. Born in December 1965, Hayter was the son of Anthony Colston Hayter, a lecturer in modern history at the University of Buckingham. Hayter enjoyed a very privileged upbringing, growing up in the plushness of a Hampstead suburb with his sisters Millie and Charlotte. Sister Charlotte would later become a TV producer, with some incredible credits to her name such as Celebrity Detox, TFI Friday, and Celebrity Wife Swap. Granted, like you, I'd rather have a true crime documentary in a day, but hey, credit where it's due, I guess. Money and wealth was very much a fixation in Hater's childhood, and his dad even paid him by the page to read the Bible each day. The young Hater always had great plans and big ideas, and was certainly never destined to be a humble man of the cloth. At the age of 16, he astounded his teachers by passing a special O-level in fruit machine technology. I never knew that was a thing either. After persuading the headmaster of his school to allow him to set up a club room at school with a coin-operated video game, which he solely profited from. And when he left school just a few months later, he managed to persuade a bank manager to loan him £500 so he could set up a video game business. And he was successful. Incredibly, by the time he'd reached just 19 years old, the business was enjoying a million pounds turnover. But soon, however, the business crashed and Hayter endured bankruptcy, with debts of over £100,000. This type of extreme high and low would soon begin to encapsulate the very pattern of his life. Hayter, I think it's fair to say, had become fixated on the trappings of wealth and he desperately tried to reclaim his lost fortune. He spent six months learning to play blackjack in Monte Carlo and eventually became a moderately successful gambler. On one occasion he won £23,000 in a single day and more than £100,000 in a year. He liked to claim that he was Britain's second most successful blackjack player and he had to visit casinos in disguise for fear that they would ban him due to his constant successes. He certainly wasn't lacking confidence in all that he did, with his entrepreneurial tendencies and a love of fine champagne and smart suits. 
At this point, you could be forgiven for thinking that he was merely a candidate on The Apprentice. But in the latter part of the 1980s, Hayter really began to hike himself to public prominence. He first made the headlines in the autumn of 1988 as a 22-year-old. His reading of the Bible as a young child certainly hadn't driven Hayter towards what the judgmental among us would see as a virtuous or honourable career choice. And he was now working as a rave promoter and dubbing himself the Acid House King. He would leave the casinos usually flush with cash, but due to the lateness of the hour, many of the clubs would be closed. But Shum, however, remember that? Was a weekly all-night dance event held at four nightclubs in London and is widely credited with initiating the UK acid house movement. And that was somewhere that Hater could always go, and he did. He was frequently there. From what you've heard so far, you're probably thinking that he was an arrogant and very assured man. But former Shoom DJ Danny Rampling recalled a slightly different version of Hater, remembering that he would always make a brash entrance into the club, always accompanied by an entourage of beautiful people who he would treat to thousands of pounds worth of champagne. He was described as an old-fashioned Hooray Henry and also regarded as a loud dickhead and a laughing stock. His presence in the club was at complete odds to its underground clientele and they tended to snub Hater and his perceived pomposity. Regardless of this though, Hater had recognised the commercial potential of Acid House and he went about creating a varied version of it which he hoped would lead to another lucrative and profitable venture. He told one interviewer of his plans to enable city bankers to shed their suits and dance all Saturday night away. In August 1988, he began to promote his first event called Apocalypse Now, held at Wembley Studios in London. Hater, perhaps ahead of his time, understood the role the media could play in helping generate interest, so he invited the News at 10 to film the event as a form of publicity. This exposure certainly achieved Hater's goal and alerted the tabloids to this new world of Acid House. That fine organ, the Sun newspaper, was one media outlet that appeared to support the new movement, proposing that their readers could, I quote, raise their street cred by learning the lingo of Acid House. Hayter now had a captive audience, and young ravers everywhere were piling up to attend his events. With this apparent success though, problems once again mounted for Hater. He was accused of luring the youth of Britain into an evil night of ecstasy at his sunrise events as the use of the drug and other substances soared. As sunrise and other rave parties flourished, a moral panic by those not enjoying what was on offer inevitably ensued. T'was ever thus, huh? Very British. This led to the police forming the Pay Party Unit, a new squad dedicated to clamping down upon unlicensed parties. As Hater faced growing opposition against his industry, he attempted to preempt the legislation that was going to be coming by launching the Freedom to Party campaign at the 1989 Conservative Conference in Blackpool. 
Hayter presented himself as an innovative free market maverick who was simply catering for a booming demand for all-night parties which could not be met under the existing licensing laws. In order to continue to drum up support for his events, Hayter was not adverse to performing very public and very visual stunts. For example, in 1989, he was invited onto the Jonathan Ross TV show, where he began to protest against the government's anti-rave policies. Towards the end of the interview, he suddenly stood up and handcuffed himself to the bemused host, saying that it was a protest against the fact that it was illegal for people to dance beyond the hour of 1.30am in the morning. He then threw a glass of water over a fellow guest in the studio. Look, like him or loathe him, you had to admit that this was a man who knew how to attract attention, particularly when he knew it would achieve the publicity he so desperately craved. However, stunts and publicity aside, the opposition against his vision was overwhelming. A private member's bill created a law that substantially increased fines for unlicensed parties. As we've already heard, Hayter was extremely adept with gadgets and IT systems, and he was able to adopt this knowledge to help fool the police and keep his party events in full swing. He realised he was able to exploit BT's voice bank system to help him become anonymous. The flyers which advertised his dance events would include no venue address, just a phone number. Excited ravers would call the number and be greeted with an answer phone message which would contain a series of rendezvous locations so that finding a rave became essentially a gleeful treasure hunt around the M25. His sunrise event was, however, eventually terminated. Yet Hayter did continue his Freedom to Party campaign for a few months, although this was motivated more by the profits he was making from selling the associated t-shirts than by any hope of a successful conclusion. With his newest venture signally quashed, Hayter disappeared from public view, moving to Hong Kong in 2003, where he set up an engineering company that created components for F1 cars. He really didn't do things by halves, did he? And he remained away from these shores until 2012. But never one to lie low indefinitely, Hayter, now aged 48, had moved back to the UK and back to London. He was now intent on a life of crime to achieve the craving that he still possessed for fortune and wealth, and he felt that time was running out. He now turned to some serious white-collar crime through a meticulously planned and sophisticated attack on Britain's banking system. Hayter headed up a group of individuals intent on plundering huge amounts of money from Barclays and Santander. His technical wizardry enabled him to be the fulcrum of the plot, which involved the use of computer technology to steal from banks as well as the fraudulent use of thousands of credit cards which had all been stolen. Hayter and his gang used a device known as a keyboard video mouse, or a KVM, switch to access and control Barclays and Santander bank accounts remotely on three separate occasions. They worked out ways to access and infiltrate the bank's IT systems, and using the KVM device, made 128 transfers of money worth almost £1.3 million 
to a network of forged accounts set up by Hater in order to launder the stolen cash. Two of the victims in this instance included the London Metropolitan University and also the University of Portsmouth. In the following months, the group struck once again, this time stealing £90,000 from another Barclays branch in Lewisham. They also managed to install another KVM device at a Santander in Surrey. The gang weren't content with only carrying out the cyber attacks, and they stockpiled around 500 stolen or intercepted bank and credit cards to indulge in expensive shopping sprees, something that Hayter loved. Finally, he had the cash to back up the chat and the swagger. They were able to obtain the banking details by using a device which spoofed genuine bank numbers, and they simply phoned customers and tricked them into passing over their personal details and PIN numbers. The oldest trick in the book, isn't it? As we know, Hater enjoyed the high life, and from this money he bought Rolex watches costing 30 grand each, expensive jewellery, and the latest iPads and Apple Mac computers from Harrods and Selfridges. Of course, for all that Hater was IT savvy, the police too had their own capabilities and they were catching up quickly and soon able to discover the computers that were locked into the KBM and Santander bank accounts. In January 2014, the police swooped on an address in Kingsley Avenue in Hounslow, West London, and the game was up for Hater and the gang, who were all quickly arrested. Hater pleaded guilty at Southwark Crown Court conspiring to steal £1.3 million from Barclays Bank and conspiracy to commit fraud using credit cards. In March 2014, the gang, including Hater, faced trial, where he admitted to having been the mastermind of the cyber attacks. A title you can imagine he may have even quite enjoyed describing to the jury. Hater had already pleaded guilty to six fraud and theft charges, and the rest of his group, comprising ten other men, all admitted a number of further charges connected with this elaborate plot. Really, Hater had little room for manoeuvre, following the police raid of his Marylebone flat. It was found to be the old cliché of an Aladdin's cave, filled with incriminating documents plastered to the walls. On Friday the 14th of March, Hater was found guilty of the charges levelled at him. The court heard that Hater had been sucked into a life of crime in order to fuel his drug addiction, which had been fostered in his acid house days. He was to be sentenced the following month, the judge advised. The lead inspector from the Met Police Cybercrime Unit said, Today's convictions are the culmination of a prolonged and highly complex investigation by the Met Police Service detectives into an organised crime group that sought to target London's banks and credit card companies in order to steal millions of pounds. The Met is committed to stripping criminals of their assets so that crime does not pay. Only a cynic could fail to agree. And there are no cynics listening today, right? In April 2014, Hater was jailed for five and a half years. The judge told him, There is no doubt in my mind that you played a key operational role in taking forward and implanting these plans. The court heard more in mitigation about how Hater's life had began to spiral downwards 
when he began abusing Class A drugs. But he went to prison and then he was released, so we could assume that by now he might finally put to bed his life of criminality. But alas, this was a man who was unable to unshackle himself from it. Once again, thoroughly intent on making money through illegal means, Hater this time worked alone, but on no less an audacious plot. Upon his release from prison, he had been living in Brighton on the south coast. But rather than enjoy the beautiful coastline and strolls along Brighton's famous pier, he instead wasted little time in starting his newest venture of deception. And this was possibly his most elaborate yet. In the latter part of 2017, Hater had been creating a high-tech yet homemade machine that was able to trick people into believing that he was actually their banking provider. Remarkably, he was able to take more than £500,000 in this way. But in January 2018, detectives from the Met Police Cybercrime Unit again began investigating Hater, having identified him as a key protagonist in UK-wide cybercrime. Following months of investigation, officers once again landed at his address, and they were shocked at what they discovered. The homemade device looked extremely amateurish, and more like something you'd see at a local market stall, but its shoddy appearance belied its capabilities. The machine was even capable of altering Hater's voice so it matched the age and gender of the victims when he telephoned the banks. Now, if you take a look at the police images of the device online, you wouldn't expect it to be capable of such things. It looks more like the sort of thing they might create on Blue Peter. The device was even decorated with holy images. A nod back to the Bible days with his dad, perhaps? Or more likely, a hope that some divine intervention may be able to avert another arrest. If it was the latter, he'd be hugely disappointed. As the police search of the property continued, they found a hard drive containing details of passports as well as 32 credit cards. They discovered he'd accessed names, addresses, email addresses and phone numbers from members of a private London club. The machine was known technically as a, wait for it, semi-automatic social engineering bank telephone machine and it also played a pre-recorded message from banks to its customers. Officers unearthed a spreadsheet of his victims details and a flowchart revealing how to commit a mobile phone sim card swap fraud. Facing trial again, Hater had little option but to once again admit further fraudulent offences. He admitted to nine counts of presenting an article for use in fraud and two counts of making or supplying an article for use in fraud. Following his arrest, he told officers that he'd created a device with the intention of accessing bank customers' accounts, which in total comprised more than half a million pounds between them. Once again, here was a man simply unable to resist breaking the law in order to have the money that he wanted. And duly, in December 2018, He once more suffered being sent to the slammer at Southwark Crown Court. This time he got 20 months. The judge said, 
you were released on licence from a five and a half year sentence for fraud. In July 2016, you had a significant period where you complied with your licence, but then you returned to fraudulent behaviour. Over a period of months and with a very significant degree of planning, you made a whole variety of items for use in fraud. And the police said, this should send a very clear message to anyone considering committing crimes of this nature, that we have the tools and methods to identify you and bring you to justice. Whether or not this stark warning is fine enough to convince Tony Colston Hater to pull back from criminality, only time will tell. It seems probable, however, that this very colourful character's liking for some of the finer things in life may just provide too much of an irresistibility for him. We can perhaps only hope that next time he tries to achieve them by more mainstream methods, or else that his luck changes. So what do you make of what you've heard today? It's easy to dismiss Hater as just a lovable, larger-than-life buffoon, isn't it? But I wonder why some people react to him in that way. Is it the charisma and personality? So here's the thing. His level of deceit and willingness to defraud you and me was up there with any criminal we've heard about on this podcast. And maybe there is something about so-called characters, especially those who speak well, look the part and have often enjoyed levels of privilege and entitlement, which invokes that reaction in some and completely the opposite in others. Why? I guess that's for another more socially aware podcast. But whatever you think about Hater, my hunch is that we are likely to read about him again very soon. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast and a huge thanks to Chris Wood for bringing us this story. To discuss this case or talk about any aspect of UK True Crime, please join us on the Facebook group, there's over 70,000 of us. And support this show and get all the behind the scenes stuff and bonus episodes and to keep me producing a free episode every week, please join me at patreon.com slash UK True Crime. So that is all for me for another week. Thanks again for taking the time to join me when you could have been relaxing with a new towel, maybe a mighty Leeds United towel, in a sauna somewhere on the outskirts of Manchester. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy despite all the others. And most of all, stay classy. Cheerio for now.